You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. This is what happens when there's a new series. It's a short bumper, so you're all still being friendly. (laughs) Good to see all of you. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us for worship today. Happy New Year. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here, and just grateful to have you with us, worshiping with us. Starting a new four-week vision series uh, today, getting back to the basics of what makes us a church, and uh, excited to jump into that with you. But before we do that, Let's go to God and and ask for his help. So Jesus, we thank you for saving us and making us your followers. Uh, We are your students and master. We want to sit at your feet and learn from you. Jesus, we are not here to hear me. We're here to hear you and what you have to teach us through your word today. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe and obey what you want to teach us today. And I ask it in your name, amen. You know, there's this stereotype of men uh, were unemotional, detached, stoic. But people only say that because they've never watched men watch football. (laughs) And if you want to see a man deeply, I mean deeply, Connect with his emotions. Just watch him watch his favorite team, especially when they're losing. Uh, That man is very emotionally invested. Uh, And I am that man. This is certainly true of me. I am very emotionally invested in a certain sports franchise, the Niners. And um, I'll admit it, my commitment to them is excessive. Excessive. I have spent too much of my mental and emotional energy, thinking about them, fretting about them, hoping in them. Uh, I even feel a personal attachment to the players on the team. That's weird, isn't it? They don't know who I am, but I, I care about them, and I think they're really good people. In fact, I think they're better people than the people on other teams, like the Seahawks. Um, <laughs> But on Christmas Day, a thought occurred to me as my beloved Niners were imploding and I was getting emotional about it. You know, I had this thought and it's hit me at times to time, from time to time. You know, I do nothing to impact this game. It literally doesn't matter whether I watch or whether I don't. I'm not involved in what's happening at all. So why do I care so deeply about something I'm so removed from over which I have zero control. Here's why. Here's why you care. And here's why you can't stop caring. Because there is a human need to belong to part of something bigger. And it's just there. It's why you can't stop caring. You gotta be part of a bigger tribe, a bigger team that's fulfilling a better mission, a bigger mission than you could accomplish on your own. It's why people care about celebrity dating. Why do you care about that? It's something bigger than you. It's some bigger purpose. Now, here's the challenge for us in the body of Christ. It's possible to have a certain kind of experience, to come here and have a certain kind of experience, and here's what it is. You enjoy worship, 
and you enjoy fellowship, and you enjoy the experience. In fact, there's an emotional attachment to what happens here. You might even enjoy the preaching from time to time. And you feel invested. You feel part of something bigger, but it never goes beyond that feeling. Do you know what that is? That's a fan experience. You feel connected, but, but in a sense, you know, I'm in the stands. I'm not in the game moving the mission forward. So as we start the year, here's the challenge as we get back to basics. When Jesus calls us to follow him, listen, Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers, which means when Jesus calls you into relationship with himself, he's never calling you into the stands. He's not even calling you to the sidelines. He's actually calling you, commissioning you to get in the game and move the line of scrimmage forward. That gets to the core of why we exist as a church. We don't exist to provide religious goods and services. We exist to help you get in the game and participate in Jesus' mission. So, four weeks, we're looking at the vision of Creekside, the mission of the church. Why does the church exist? What's our purpose? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Jesus tells us the church's mission. Last thing he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection and that he's the king of the universe. What do we do? We go. Therefore, and here's the key, make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gives the church this mission, make disciples, which means Jesus has told Creekside Community Church, make disciples. That's why we exist. It's important to get that clear. We do not exist to make Sunday services. Because Jesus did not say, go into all the nations and put on hour and 15-minute services with four songs up front and then 35 minutes of moderately funny preaching and right here and then a song at the end. He didn't give us that mission. We don't exist to make programs. We don't exist to make events. We certainly don't exist to make money. We exist to make disciples and everything we do, whether it's a sermon or a series or an event or a program, everything should be about what? Making disciples. And if it doesn't make disciples, we should kill it or change it so it what? Makes disciples. That's the point. That's the mission. And here's what's critical for us to realize as the church, what Christopher Wright said, the Old Testament scholar, God did not give a mission to his church. He formed a church for his mission. This is why we exist. It's not like God saved a bunch of people and then had to think, okay, what mission am I going to give them? No, God has always had a mission to cover the earth with his glory and his power and his presence so that his kingdom would extend and he forms a people to participate with him in what he is already doing. Family, that's why we exist. Make disciples. That's the mission of the church. And a church that doesn't make its disciples is sort of like a football team that doesn't care about scoring more points than the other team. It's that basic. It's actually worse than that. It's kind of like a football team that only gathers and huddles and never runs a play. Like every Sunday, we just come here and we all huddle to look at the playbook 
And the crowd roars. <sighs> and then during the week, we're going to scatter. We're going to run a play, right? No, we all go back. We wait till the next week and we all huddle up, right? Someday we're going to run a play. No, we're here to run a play. We're here to see the mission of God extend. That's why the church exists. That's why Creekside exists. That's Creekside's mission. Did you know we have a mission statement? Believe it or not, I never tell you what it is, which is really, that's not a good thing for a leader to do, right? You should, anyway, here it is. Here's why we exist, to make disciples. We exist to make mature, reproducing followers of Christ by winning as many people as possible through the preaching and the demonstration of the gospel, by building as many people as possible into mature Christ-like believers in a loving community of faith, and by sending as many people as possible to serve Christ in their local communities and throughout the world. That statement is just a restatement of what? Matthew 28. Make disciples. And that tells you how we make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Well, someone has to be one to Christ. That means they need to hear the gospel message and they need to come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's winning them. And once they've been one to Christ, they need to be built up in the faith. They need to become part of a loving community of faith where they're built up and they come like Jesus. So they know Jesus, now they're growing to be like Jesus. And if they become like Jesus, they'll do what Jesus did, which means they'll participate in his mission. They'll go with Jesus, we'll send them out into the world. So we win, we build, we send. That's what we are all about. And as you can see, the definition of a disciple is actually built into that statement. What does it mean to be a disciple? Here's what it means. First, someone who has been one to Christ, that means they what? They know Jesus. They have a personal relationship with him. They know him through his word. And as they're built up, what is a disciple? It's someone who is growing to be like who? Jesus. You're following Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus. And if you're becoming more like Jesus, you're growing to be like Jesus, you will go with Jesus to extend his mission. So a disciple knows, grows, goes. And that's helpful because it rhymes and you'll remember it. So that's good. That's why we exist. That's what a disciple is. But here's the thing. Our mission as a church and our definition of a disciple, it assumes something. And here's what it assumes. That the mission of making disciples is not just what the church does as an institution. Whose mission is it? It's not just the pastor's, it's yours. It's every Christian's mission to make disciples. In fact, this is part of what it means to be a disciple, and this is where things get itchy. This is where they get personal. This is about our identity as followers of Jesus, and this is the heart of what I want to talk about for the next few weeks. Here's the most basic question. What's a Christian? What's a Christian? Here's the New Testament answer. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. You know, the word Christian, do you know how many times it appears in the New Testament? Three. Yeah. Some of you knew that. Good job. Disciple? This one's harder to know. How many times? 261. 261 times. That's your identity, a disciple. What's a disciple? A learner. That's what the word literally means. You are learning from Jesus how to live life. Jesus has chosen you to be with him. You're in relationship and he is teaching you how to live life in the kingdom of God. And as you learn from Jesus, you become like Jesus. And here's the thing, if you become like Jesus, you'll do what he does. And what did Jesus spend his earthly ministry doing? What did he spend his time doing? 
you know the answer. Making disciples, which means if I'm following Jesus, I'm becoming like Jesus, which means ultimately I will do what Jesus does. I will make disciples too. It's the inevitable result of following Jesus. And so you can never separate being a disciple from making disciples. The clear implication here is that Matthew 28, this mission, it's not just for pastors or church leaders or professional Christians. It's for all of us. It's your purpose. It's my purpose. Think about it like this way. This is one reason God saved you within history. You ever wondered that? Like, why didn't God just save you and then, boom, zapped into glory right after that? Why all this suffering and toil and hardship? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but, but here's a basic reason. He saved you within history because there's a mission for you to accomplish that he wants to use you to accomplish in history. There is a mission of making disciples that is incomplete, and he calls you to be a part of it, and so if you have a pulse as a believer in Jesus, you have a mission. Make disciples. Make disciples. And here's the thing. Only disciples can make disciples. You can't just design a perfect program or a perfect system and disciples pop out. I wish it were that easy. I wish it was like a copy machine, right? So have a machine, put in one disciple, boom, Jesus duplicates, just come, spitting out. And if it was mechanical, it'd be easy, wouldn't it? Because then we just designed the perfect church, right? And just make the worship as cool as it can be and the preaching a little better, right? And the program's awesome. And if we just get the system right, we should spit out what? Disciples. Does it work that way? doesn't appear to in the American church because we have conquered strategy and systems and programs and we're not spitting out disciples. You know why? Because it's not mechanical, it's personal. God works through people to change other people. And yes, programs and events can help, but ultimately it's disciples that make disciples. The, the dominant New Testament image is parenting. That's pretty personal, isn't it? <laughs> You're walking with someone, helping them along, not clear time constraints, suffering, working with them, raising someone out. You can't just farm your kids out to an institution, right? And expect them to get parented. No, you got to parent them. Discipleship is personal and it's organic. The, the other New Testament image is bearing fruit, right? So bearing fruit means a seed is getting sown in the ground and then it grows into a plant and there's an organic process and it, it comes to maturity and then when a thing is mature, what does it do? It, it reproduces. It bears more fruit, more disciples and more seeds are planted, more fruit is born. Here's what that image means. Jesus Christ is living in each of you to reproduce his life through you. The Christian life is not, as we often say around here, it's not about me doing my best for Jesus. It's about Jesus doing his best through me. And Jesus wants to live in you and make you like him. And then, here's the amazing part, actually work through you to reproduce his life in other people. That's what we're talking about. All of us are involved in that. It's what all of us do. So that's what we're talking about over the next four weeks. That was a long introduction, but we need to have that set up. And so we're going to talk about where we make disciples and who makes disciples and how we make disciples. But today, let's start with the most basic question. You always start with why. Why should we make disciples? I'm going to tell you two things. 
Can I tell you the bad news that keeps us from making disciples? And then the good news that causes us to make disciples. Now, whenever someone says, look, I got good news, I got bad news, what do you want to hear first? Bad news. So let's start with the bad news. What keeps us from making disciples? Because here's the problem. Why should we make disciples? Because Jesus tells us, right? We know the answer. Jesus said, go do it. But if I look at my life, I've spent a lot of time not making disciples, (laughs) not invested in this mission. So we know what to do. Why don't we do it? Here's the bad news. Maybe we should say the challenging news. It's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. Three barriers that you will face the minute you think about doing this. Barrier number one is this. I don't know enough. I don't know enough to make disciples. And it's good to feel that because disciple means learner. That's what the word means. And and so if you're learning how to live by Jesus, that means you know something, right? And if you're making a disciple, that means you have to teach someone else, teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded. And so, man, we think, okay, I'm supposed to teach people what I've learned about Jesus, but I don't know if I know the word that well, and I need to learn more. And and it's not like you're just teaching any subject. You're teaching the most important, consequential thing you could teach. You're saying, this is Jesus, the Lord of the world. Here's the eternal consequences of believing. I mean, this is weighty stuff, right? And the minute you go to do this, you're going to think, oh, I don't know if I know what to say. What if I don't know what to say? Or worse, what if I say something really stupid? as I'm doing this. Now, that's a barrier we're gonna face. Here's the reality. You need to know the word. You need to learn the word. That is absolutely true. Here's what's also true. If you wait until you know enough, enough, or you feel competent enough, will you ever do this? No. You will always feel inadequate to do this. Always. I'll I'll prove it to you, okay? Because if anybody in this room is qualified to preach the Bible, I mean, not to brag, but it's probably me, okay? And here's why. Like, not to brag, like, like I said, I grew up in a home where my dad and mom just taught me the Bible all the time, just teaching me the Bible all the time. I got it. They did a good job, Bible, 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 all the time, and they lived it out. And then I went to college, and guess what I studied? The Bible, right? I'm a predictable guy. Just do one thing, study the Bible. And so undergrad, I did Bible, and then I thought, huh, you know what I should study? The Bible, I did more Bible. And then I went into a job where my primary job was to teach what? The Bible. And so I spent the last 15 years, and you've paid me, thank you very much, studying the Bible and teaching the Bible. This is pretty much what I do with my time is think about the Bible. So this week, last week, a buddy of mine says, hey, there's a guy uh, in hospice right now, and he wants to talk to a pastor. He's about to die. Can you come share the word? I said, sure. Because I'm a pastor, like, that's like in the job description, right? You should do that if you're a pastor. So I'm on my way there. I'm driving. The radio is off, and I'm praying, God, give me the words and all this stuff, and I'm thinking about what I should say. And you know the thought that occurred to me? I have no idea what to say to this guy. And then you know the next thought that occurred to me? You know, I should probably listen to a podcast or something <laughs> on how to talk to people about that. No, no, that's crazy. No one is more qualified than me to have that conversation. And yet I feel like I need to learn more. So this is why I'm telling you that story. You're never going to get there, ever. You're never going to feel like you know enough. 
Here's why. It's not just what you are teaching. It's the weight of what you are teaching. You are an ambassador of King Jesus. You are representing him. Is there a weightier person to represent? You're always going to feel inadequate. Listen to what Paul says. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from who? God. And he's talking about his ministry as a minister of the new covenant. When I go out to teach people, Paul says, I am not adequate to do this. I am not sufficient to do this. Only God can make me sufficient. So the first thing you're always going to feel when you try to make a disciple is I'm inadequate. And that's good because you are. You're never going to know enough. Only God can make you adequate, can qualify you to do this. No one's qualified in themselves. Only God can do it. So that's the first reason it's hard. You're going to feel dependent. You're going to feel weak. Here's the second reason it's hard. You think about trying to reach people for Jesus or teach people the word. The great temptation is to think, I just need the right plan. If I just had the best method or strategy or plan, and then we create outreach strategies and we think, okay, I, I just, I'm going to have this dinner on this night of the week, and I'm going to invite my friends, and then we're going to watch a video so I don't have to teach, right? And the video, and it's going to be the guy with the answers, right? Is going to be the video. And they can answer all their objections and, and, and all this stuff. And now, hey, if you do that, awesome. It's great to have a plan. It's really good to have a plan. You know, we make plans at Creekside. We have a strategy to reach people. It's helpful to have a method, but as we go out to make disciples, here's what we need to remember. God's going to change your plans all the time. Because Proverbs 16.9 says this, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We make plans, but then God has plans. Sometimes they go like this. But, but here's the reality. God is already out in the world drawing people to himself, reaching people, moving. And the places he is moving might not be the places we are moving into. And the opportunities he is giving us might not be the ones we were looking for. So as you go out, you have to be what? Flexible. You have to be flexible to where God is leading you and it might not be where you thought. And, and if you disagree with me, read the book of Acts. Did they have a plan in the book of Acts? Sort of. They were like, start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. You know what you don't read in Acts? It's like, and then Jesus left and the apostles gathered and after prayer, they formed a plan. A five-year master plan for reaching Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth and then they executed the plan. Is that the book of Acts? No, it's a mess. In fact, they don't go. They stay. That's the first thing they do. <laughs> they stay in Jerusalem until there's a persecution and then they flee. And as they flee, what do they do? They make disciples. Paul had a plan. He had a strategy. He wanted to reach cities that hadn't heard the gospel. He clearly had a plan and yet he had to change his plans all the time. I mean, read Acts 16 sometime when Luke joins Paul and they go on a missionary journey. It's hilarious. We walked across all of Turkey and there were no opportunities. It's a long way to walk. No, 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 no. We get up to Troas. Woohoo! Going over to Troas. We got an open door. Go over to Philippi. Open door. People are learning the gospel here. They're believing it. Praise God. Only problem is we get thrown in jail. That's the plan. 
Would any of us come up with that plan? No. Sounds like a terrible plan. Guess what? It was God's plan. So as you go out, here's the thing. The opportunities won't come when you think. The people who are receptive aren't the people that you will assume. You have to be flexible. You're dependent. You're flexible. Those are two reasons we feel inadequate. Here's the third reason. I don't have enough time. I mean, who has time to do this? Now, we'll we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but this truth is challenging, and here's why. Here's why. I'm going to tell you from hard-learned experience, no matter how beautifully you budget your time, no matter how much margin you create in your schedule to do this, no matter how much rest you get, discipleship will always feel like it takes too much time. It's always costly. Do you know why? Because if you notice something about people, they're not easy to squeeze into a schedule, aren't they? They're actually investing in a relationship. It's not just like, oh, gave you my 30 minutes for this week. It's not how it works. It's costly. Maybe you think, man, I could just be like Paul. Paul had all this time to do this. Did Paul get tired? (laughs) What does he say to the Thessalonians? For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul had planted this church in Thessalonica and when he planted it there, he didn't want to charge people to hear his teaching. He didn't want them to think that he had some ill motive, that he was just in this for financial gain. So you know what he did? He raised his own salary. He worked a date job. And day by day, he's making tents. Night by night, he's teaching the gospel. Day and night, that sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Toil, that means working to the point of exhaustion. It was hard for Paul too. This will wear you out. It will make you tired. No matter how well you budget your time, you're never gonna have as much time as you think you need to do this, okay? Now, at this point in the talk, you might be a bit confused because you're like, Jeff, you've told me the bad news, but then you just sort of made it worse news. Like, when do things get better? This just, you just made it sound harder. Here's what I hope you see, family, because I want to be honest with you. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. In fact, if it's hard, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It probably means you're doing it right. I remember when I first started playing rugby, I played rugby for a few years, and I was just learning how to tackle. And the coaches give you lots of teaching at the beginning about here's how you form up, and you gotta go low, and you lead with your shoulder, and you you gotta wrap, and you gotta drive, and they teach you all that, and it's great. You're like, oh man, this is really gonna help me. And it's great, but then you gotta go um, tackle somebody. And so you go to that first tackling drill, And they just line up a guy over here and you're over here and there's cones between you and they say, okay, we've taught you now. Hit him, right? And I remember, I was 13, I'm a buck 40 dripping wet and there's a guy across from me and he's like 280. He's probably 205, but it makes the story sound better. He's like 280, he's huge. And they blow the whistle, I say, okay. And so I go and I form up and I get low and I lead with my shoulder and I wrap, uh, but he's really big. And so like I drive and then his weight just kind of carries me backwards and I, and I hug him and he's going forward and I just hug him and he's still going forward and he's still going forward and it's like a tree falling and he just falls right on me. And it hurts. It hurts so much that you're like, hmm, 
maybe not rugby, right? Like maybe this isn't for me. I don't know. And immediately, you know what my thought was? I did something wrong. I must have not tackled correctly. And the coaches look at me and go, good job, let's do it again. No, it hurt because I actually got in his way and did what I was supposed to. It it hurt because I did it right. Family, if you're doing it right, it'll be hard. Listen to how Paul describes his ministry of making disciples. 1 Corinthians 9, remember he says, I have made myself a servant to all. Paul says the only way to reach people is to enter their world. And so I have to deny myself and to the Greeks, I became a Greek. I had to enter their culture. To the Jews, I became a Jew. I had to enter their culture. To weak, lowly people, I had to humble myself. You're always entering other people's world to make disciples. You have to find out their interests, what they care about. Talk about their preferences, their interests, their values. They're not coming to you. You have to go to them and form friendships with the realization that they might not be interested in Jesus yet. They might not even be interested in you yet. It's a lot of question asking. It's a lot of concern. It's a lot of drawing out, and it's not reciprocal. Sometimes you're not going to want to do that. It's going to take discipline. What does Paul say? I discipline my body for this mission. You know what he's saying? I beat my body. That's literally what he's saying. There's lots of days I'm too tired. There's lots of days I'd rather do something else. I have to discipline myself to stay on mission. If you do this, you're going to have to enter other people's world, deny your own preferences, and go to them to serve them, to build relationship with them. You're going to be in situations where you have to stand firm on your convictions. Paul says in Philippians 1, you have to stand firm. It's a military term, like being in a phalanx and you're getting attacked and you have to not budge. There's times when you're talking about the gospel with people where you're going to believe something as a Christian. And it is contradictory to what people in our culture believe. And people are going to ask you, do Christians actually believe that? And you can nuance the heck out of it all you want and go, well, but eventually you're going to have to say, yes, that's what we believe. You might sense opposition. You might feel a little out of place, a little ostracized for that. You have to stand firm. Paul says you have to strive for the faith of the gospel. Striving implies there's opposition. Listen, even if there isn't obvious human opposition, there's always opposition from who? The devil. He is always going to throw plans to distract you and discourage you. Always. Do you know why? Because you're doing the right thing. (laughs) Now you're in the game. You are in the stands. The devil doesn't care about it when you're in the stands. Great. If you're a fan Christian, great. When you're a follower and you're moving the line of scrimmage forward, now he's going to hit you. Now you're going to get tackled. It's going to hurt. You have to strive. Paul says that we represent the the suffering of Jesus when we do this. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Isn't that an amazing statement? Now, what does Paul say there? He's not saying that Christ's death is insufficient. Like somehow we need to suffer to atone for the sins of the world. Now, do you know what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? People haven't yet seen the suffering of Jesus in who? His followers. So as we go out, we're going to suffer. That's what Paul is saying. And as we suffer, we're going to present a suffering Messiah and our own toil, our own hardship. Do you know what it does? It gives our message credibility. This is built into what it means to make disciples. Paul goes on to say it this way, I toil for this, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, so does any of that sound easy? 
No. And I think that this is often the missing ingredient in the West and in America when we talk about discipleship, is that we think if we just get the strategies and the outreach and the marketing and the preaching and all these things right, somehow disciples will be made. And we forget that suffering is the deal, that it is hard work to do this. It is discouraging it is fatiguing, and it's going to take everything we have. And so here's the question, what's going to fuel us to do this? Where's the good news in this, Jeff? Well, if you forget the good news of what Jesus has already done, you will only be discouraged and resentful and angry as you do this. If you remember what Jesus has done, I think it changes everything. So three truths as quickly as I can. It usually isn't that quick, but as quickly as I can. Three truths Here's the good news. Here's the first truth I have to remember if I go out to make disciples. It's not like Jesus is holding out on me. It's not like Jesus has never done anything for me. In fact, Jesus gave himself for me that I might give myself for him and his mission of making disciples. Maybe you think, I don't have the time. This is too tiring. I have other options in life, other things I want to do. Why do this? Here's why. Because Jesus was in heaven and he had infinite options of what he could do. And he saw you perishing and going to eternal ruin and he chose for himself one option and it was the hardest option to choose. The hardest one. And Jesus is the great disciple maker, isn't he? Because he sees us lost people, he enters our world, enters our suffering, seeks and saves us, dies the most humiliating, painful death imaginable, and at infinite cost, rescues us from ruin to make us his own and give us everything heaven has to offer. That's who Jesus is. And do you know why he did it? Do you know why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough to choose the hardest option to have you. That's how much he loves you. And the more you think about that love, the more you will feel compelled to give your life to him. Like it's not an option anymore. Jesus closed off his options to get me. So I'm gonna close off my options for him. Paul says it this way, for the love of Christ, what does he say? Controls us because we have concluded this, that one, Jesus has died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now I geek out on this verse a little bit because there's an ambiguity here in the Greek right at the beginning. Paul says the love of Christ controls him. So what love is he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus' love for him controls him? Or is he talking about his love for Jesus that controls him? And the answer is we have no idea. It could be either. I think it's both. And I think that's the whole point. That when you see the cost of what Jesus did to get you that love produces in you a love for Jesus that nothing else can. And you say, I have no other option in life but to live for him. My days of living for me are over. He purchased me for himself. So my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, they all are second to Jesus and what he wants for me. Only the gospel can give you that kind of purpose. 
So, so Jesus' love wins us to live for him because he already lived and died for us. And he still lives to serve us. That's the gospel truth number one that changes our hearts. Truth number two is this. Jesus grants me a power for making disciples that I could never generate. You say, Jeff, I'll never know enough. I'll never have the right words to win someone to Jesus. I'll never be able to make a disciple. And in one sense, guess what? You are absolutely right. <laughs> Who is sufficient to do any of this? Can you change a human heart? <laughs> I can't change my own heart. What makes you think that your skills and your eloquence and your arguments are going to win someone's heart to Jesus so they give their life to him? You can't do that. I can't do that. God can do it. How does he do it? Through the gospel. What does Paul say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen, the gospel, which is right here in this word, this is power. This is God's power to wreck people's lives and reorient them and change them at the deepest level possible because this is the word of God. The gospel here, it doesn't just inform your mind it's God's word, so it changes people when they get close to it. Did you know that? Because in the Bible, do you know how God does things? He does what? He just speaks. How does he create? He speaks. His speaking is his doing. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord shakes cedars. The voice of the Lord just does things. It's living. It's active. This word, when people get close to it, they get changed by it. And so it's not about you getting close to people and having all the right answers. It's about you being close to the word and then being close to people. And if they get into the word trusting that this can do things that I can't in their lives. You don't have what it takes, but that, God already knew that. He gives you the power of the gospel message to change hearts. Here's the third truth. Jesus graces me with his joy when I join him on his mission of making disciples. Here's the thing. Okay, this isn't all bad news. Like, Paul probably suffered more than anyone in this room, realistically, or as much. Was Paul a bitter, resentful man? Would you characterize him that way? No, in fact, one of the overwhelming themes of his letters is what? Joy. Joy. Paul, Paul says, I wouldn't trade this life for anything. Every gain I had before this, I counted as rubbish, right? He cusses. I won't paraphrase, but he cusses. It's rubbish in light of Jesus. I would throw it all away for knowing Jesus and making him known. Paul says it this way. He makes disciples. He does it all for the sake of the gospel that he might share with those he saves in what? It's blessings. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul, who is saved who has been blessed by the gospel, says he wants to see people saved that he might experience the blessings of what? The gospel. So the question is like, well, hasn't Paul already experienced the blessings of the gospel? Here's what I think he's saying. When you make disciples and you experience Jesus working through you to change someone else, there's nothing in the world like that experience. And as you, I'm telling you from experience, when you see people come to faith in Jesus and walk out of the kingdom of darkness and in the kingdom of life and start growing, 
I would trade a million Niners Super Bowls to see it happen. Because in that moment, you are a conduit of God's work and you appreciate the gospel in a whole new way. You appreciate being saved in a whole new way when you see someone else meet Jesus for the first time and have their life turned around. And once you experience that, you can never get over it. It's what you wanna see again and again and again. And so here is the biggest motivation to me to, to, to wanna go make disciples. I just want to experience more of Jesus' power and presence in my life. I just want more of him. But, but where is Jesus in the world? Well, he's out on mission making disciples. That's what he's doing. He's extending his mission. So if I want to get close to Jesus and walk in close communion with him and experience his power, where should I be? Out on mission with him. Remember the way Jesus says it in John 4? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, what got Jesus up in the morning, what, what fed him, what nourished his soul, it was accomplishing the mission that God had given him. And Jesus says in John 15 that he gives us his mission that our joy might be full. I don't even have to take a show of hands. Who wants fullness of joy in their lives? <laughs> yeah, right? It's kind of like you were to sum up what you want, fullness of joy. Jesus offers it. But he says, it'll happen as you abide in me and you bear fruit. Make more disciples. I'll end with this. I think this is one reason people feel discontent in the Christian life. And, and you know what? Sometimes it's good to feel discontent. Sometimes it's good to feel dissatisfied because it means you're complacent. And, and here's one reason you get complacent. You can be filled with lots of good Christian things. Good Christian fellowship worship, good teaching, and all of those things are wonderful, you should do that. And yet you can still be starving for more in the Christian life. You know why? Because the thing that will give you food that will satisfy you is finally taking that step of faith and saying, I wanna get in the game. I wanna make disciples. And, and, and listen, I'll, I'll just tell you from personal experience, church will never be good enough to satisfy that longing. <laughs> There will never be good enough church programs to fill that. You only can find that satisfaction as you go out and make disciples with Jesus. That's what I've experienced. I long for you to experience it too because here's the thing. When we are out making disciples, Jesus says, I am with you and we experience his presence in a special, profound way and I just want more of that. And you know, the reason I want to be with Jesus, you know why I want to be with Jesus all the time? Because he wants to be with me. In fact, he, he traded the joy of heaven for the infinite cost of the cross for the joy of getting me back. And so there's no one else I want to be with. And that's what makes us willing to be on his mission. Let's pray. So, so God, I pray that this wouldn't be discouraging but encouraging. Lord, that we'd be sobered by the reality of the task. Uh, Lord, that is bigger than us. Uh, that we are inadequate to do. I just, I'm so grateful, Lord, that you give these great promises with your command. First, that you have all authority, Jesus, so that you will prevail in this. And second, that your presence is with us as we do it. 
So, so Jesus, I pray you would bring to mind that person in our life that you are drawing to yourself, I trust you are, and you would give us opportunity, Lord, to win them, to build them, to send them, Lord. What greater privilege could we have? Thank you, Jesus. Would you be our vision, Jesus? We follow you to the ends of the earth in your name.